Aiden Kaplan, and I am here with the American Agora podcast and Kevin Shaktano. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, inflation in America post-pandemic, uh, an article that Kevin wrote in March. Uh, just kind of to get our baseline for this topic, Kevin, in your article you wrote that um, inflation in America is up at to 7.5%, which is incredibly high. But how does that compare with previous years? What does that kind of mean for the average American? Right. So I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of the headlines. It's the highest inflation in 40-something years. And that is basically true. I believe uh, the last year we had inflation as high as 7.5%. Uh, it's gone up, I think, a bit, like a few points in this in this month since I published. But the last time we had inflation like that was, I believe, in 1982, coming off of the stagflation crisis in the 1970s. Um, a lot of the reason why this is so unexpected is because, especially since the Great Recession, uh, inflation has stayed very low. I mean, even before that, it was it was really constant in that two to three percent range. The Great Recession it was sometimes even hard to get above two percent. Um, so it's it's it is very significantly high, um, especially for a country like America that historically has low inflation. Yeah, to have the inflation basically go from like a two percent of quadrupling almost in mm-hmm. uh, the past couple of years is. It kind of insane. And you mentioned in your article uh, a couple of reasons for that. Do you want to kind of go through those really quickly? Sure. So in my article, I basically outlined that there's two primary and corollary. They work together. There's two factors that are really driving this inflationary crisis. Um, just for broad strokes, the first one was pandemic era issues with the supply chain and in international logistics and shipping. I'm sure everyone's heard those stories of uh, ocean freighters off of the coast of California lined up for miles and miles off sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of that reason, and we can get into that a little later. Mm-hmm. The other second reason I brought up was basically price gouging, how companies now, since there is generally a an, an environment where people think about inflation, they can basically take advantage of that and just start raising prices um, basically for no economic necessity reason, but just because they can make basically more profits if they price gouge. And those are the two basic uh, components that I think are really driving the current crisis. So yeah, it's like when companies see, oh, everyone knows that inflation's going up. Uh, well, if I charge a couple extra dollars for this, then people are going to be like, well, that's inflation for you. you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, there's been a lot of, in their quarterly earnings calls to investors, like CEOs have been bragging about their ability to push off costs, and they've been really touting their ability to, to raise prices in the current environment. Um, which really points to uh, price gouging beyond what is necessary, beyond what they need to cover increased expenses, because there are increased expenses. Mm-hmm. But it's price gouging for price gouging's sake. It's for profiteering's sake. Yeah, it's interesting the kind of flagrant, like, yeah, like touting, like being able to brag about this um, price gouging, It just in your investor meetings, it, it points to how little... Uh, accountability there is for these kinds of things you know people can just brag about it in there yeah that's meetings. definitely that's definitely true and like these quarterly earnings calls they kind of exist in this like liminal space between it's technically public but it's also private no one really looks into it so a lot of the times you'll see these executives uh saying things they maybe wouldn't put in a press release yeah that's a it's good source for uh if you ever want to catch a uh corporate boss saying something they probably don't want you to hear. So uh, 
with that in mind, going back to the kind of uh, thing you mentioned about boats lined up outside of California, uh, you mentioned again in your article about this is kind of a problem that we could have seen coming with the limited investment in port infrastructure and kind of the shifts in how cargo ships are developing and what types of ships we use. Um, why is that getting to this point? Like, what, what was going on? What do we need to do? So. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the reporting I relied on, and this is from, I believe, the American Prospect, that's mm-hmm. done a really big series on the current inflationary crisis, um, specifically with ports in America. Over, like, the past few decades, um, basically, the idea of economies of scale, ocean freight companies have, have decided to build larger and larger ships to cram more and more containers on them um, just so they can get more volume. Uh, unfortunately, this means that there's less and less ports that can actually handle these super massive freighters. Um, so right now in America, 40% of all of our ocean freight internationally goes through the, the semi-connected ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles and Southern California. Mm-hmm. So basically, all these freighters have to go to very, like a very small number of ports. And uh, a problem that came about... Um, in the early 2010s, the Federal Maritime Commission issued a report basically saying that American ports were very prone to congestion, they didn't have a lot of excess capacity, and that there was a general lack of investment and also organization in these ports. And that basically set the stage for the, the pandemic crisis, where uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a lot of ocean freight just stopped because everything just stopped in those like March, April mm-hmm. Um but that means that a bunch of the containers that we use to ship everything, everything is shipped in these same metal containers that are standardized, a lot of them were left in import countries. So a lot of them were left in the United States. When exports started coming back online, production started coming back online, all the exports are coming from places like China, but all the containers were in America. So there's a big shortage of containers in the places that they needed them the most. There's still enough containers, but not in the countries that they really need. And so these two factors really combine to make a horrible ocean logistics industry uh, situation. And when in China they don't have enough crates, do they build more? Do they wait for the crates to come back? How does that issue kind of work out itself? Right. So in my research, I mean, there is some increased production of these containers, um, but but generally, what the industry is really doing is it's kind of trying to wait and see, and then they can get the containers back in the places that they need to be, because it's just an expense that I guess they would rather do without. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's I guess that makes sense. You don't want to end up with a surplus of crates and not enough things to put in them. But uh, I guess keeping in line with this uh, supply thread. Um, but kind of on a different side of it, uh, you also talk about overland supply of uh, trucks and, to some extent, trains, but mostly uh, the trucking industry and how very little people who drive these um, cargo trailers are getting paid and why that's creating such an issue in the supply chain. Um, how how bad is it? Well, it's actually significantly bad. I mean, in my research, I found that the turnover rate uh, for truck drivers was almost 100%, which is, is un, it's unfathomable. I mean, basically, you're, every year you're losing all of your workers and having to hire an entire staff to re-drive all of these, uh, all of these, all of these trucks, which is pretty insane. Um, basically, there's a lot, many reasons for this. Um, since really the late 1970s and 80s, uh, the, the truck driving industry is really 
tried to squeeze worker compensation out, uh, especially with the fall in unionization rates in this industry. Uh, they've been trying to basically just stagnate or cut pay to cut mm-hmm. profits. Um, and it's a relatively inhospitable job. I mean, you have to be across the country in a truck, usually by yourself, um, for days on end. So basically cutting pay in an area like this. I mean, some people, uh, if, if you work significant overtime, like you could work, you could make over 50 grand a year, which is pretty significant. But a lot more often is people are getting misclassified as contractors instead of employees. So they're making somewhere around 40K with significant overtime. And people are just saying, that's not really worth it to make barely above what I could at a minimum wage job doing this inhospitable job. And so that's creating a lot of staffing problems and there's not a lot, a lot of truck drivers to go around. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it brings up the point of e- even at a minimum wage job that's stationary, that matter, matters a lot because you can provide for a family, you can have kind of a stable area. But if you're spending literally all your time on the road, that $40,000 that you're making uh, doesn't necessarily go to improving your life all that much. But if there's a 100% turnover rate of these employees, how is the industry keeping itself afloat like how are they able to make profits even when they have to rehire every single employee every time right so i mean essentially what's going on is that even though a lot of people are quitting there's still a bunch of people who are willing to just try it out so Mm -hmm. they're able to in the short term they're able to repeatedly find enough labor just to go for a few months Mm -hmm. so they can keep businesses in uh in operation um I, I do know that increasingly um, immigrant labor is used to drive trucks. And the recent, uh, like since the pandemic started, immigration and, and migrancy to the United States has been a little cut off, um, both by Trump and Biden. That might have something to do with it, but I don't have hard data on that. Okay. Um, but overall, I mean, they're, they're keeping this compensation low. And while it does may lead to massive costs and turnover, uh, on the whole, they're still able to eke out some profits by lowering people's uh, wages and keeping them low. Mm. So in the short in the short and medium term, there's really no incentive for them to change things as long as they don't collapse in on, on themselves. That It feels insane that they could have a 100% turnover rate and still turn a profit. But, you know, I guess that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon warehouses similarly have very high rates of turnover. Not, not near 100%, but... Yeah. Um, it, it is amazing how uh, if you have a, a large amount of uh, <laughs> low low paid workers, it's it's they kind of have to take jobs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so everyone's going to have to work at some point. I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of why you can get away with it. Did you see the uh, things about the Amazon union in New York and how they uh, yeah. won their battles? That was, I mean, that's that's a step forward, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that there is. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, you're good. Yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, there's definitely um, a lot of movement with labor activity and organization in this country. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a lot of like the big things going on over like the Starbucks unionization. Yes. Obviously, this Amazon vote is a very big deal because it's like one of the largest companies in the world, one of the largest employers in America. Mm-hmm. So it would be a, just as a signaling, as a symbol, it would be uh, it would be very big for a company like Amazon to experience large amounts of unionization. Um, this was New York City, though. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how far this can spread, but I, I would hope it spreads. Yeah, of course. The the union, um, hopefully we are seeing a union expansion, even though uh, 
the art, the information in your article seems to indicate differently, at least for the trucking industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible what a change there's been since the like eighties. Um, cause I remember hearing about trucking and someone telling me like, Oh yeah, it's actually, you actually make plenty of money doing like travel. And then I'm, I guess their data was a little old cause, uh, it's right. changed significantly. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely think, I mean, there definitely are people that make significant amounts of money um, in trucking, but uh, some caveats. Uh, basically, you're always going to hear about the big cases of people mm-hmm. making more money. And while that doesn't mean that it's not like they're lying, there are people who do make a lot of money in trucking. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's important to see if it's an exception rather than the rule, which it generally is, especially when I said um, about how increasingly they're like XPO, they treat all of their workers as contractors, even though they are employees they just call them contractors yeah. they're making forty thousand dollars or less when they're working significant overtime so that 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 when you work it down by hour it's not making as much anymore yeah and i guess that's kind of a trend in a lot of companies uh, in america i only know about ones in america so i can't necessarily speak internationally but there's you know, making people contractors, having interns. There's a lot of like mm-hmm. semantics that goes into paying people less than you're supposed to. Right. Um, yeah. No, I actually, that was actually one of my recent articles, I believe. No, not recent. My previous article. Yeah. Uh, it was in 2020. Not, not that recent anymore, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Time keeps oh, going. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually wrote, there's a big part. I think it was the, uh, the ghost of labor, past, present, and future. Uh, mm-hmm. This, this trend of, 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 Turning people into other contractors or, or temp workers has grown a lot. Um, I mean, I think a, a big root would be in the 80s, but especially in the last 20 to 30 years, especially post-Great Recession, basically having people but not having to call them employees and not having to give them the, the rights and like the, the privileges of, of employees. It's been a big trend. Um, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's brutal. Um I think we were there. There's actually an interesting thing you mentioned: how inflation caused by the going back a little bit, inflation caused by the pandemic um, is being used by companies to kind of hide price gouging. Um, I've also been seeing a lot of politicians in America and abroad talking about how much money um, the wealthiest people in the world have made during the pandemic. Is there? Is this part of that connection? Is there, cause you know, we've, I've heard Bernie Sanders talk about it. I've heard politicians in Germany, in, um, the UK all talking about how, what a truly absurd amount of money, uh, the wealthiest people in the world have been able to make. Right. So I think there is definitely a connection. I mean, when you look at, when people talk about the wealth that all these billionaires have made, generally what they're referring to is through the value and the prices of their stock portfolios and their investments. And of course, where do all the stocks get most of their value? Oh, it's from the expected profitability of the companies that sell those stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, price gouging is a big reason why corporate profitability has gone up so much. I mentioned in the article, uh, the profit margins of U.S. corporations are at the highest level in around 70 years. Uh, it's just dramatically high. And we're not just talking about just the net income, the, the bottom line. We're talking about the profit margin, which means... They're not just like selling more things. They're making more money per unit, um, which which is really the key here. It's not that inflation technically could lead to something like high profits because 
well, your selling prices go up, but your expenses also go up. So mm-hmm. there's some accounting there. But higher profit margins specifically point to they're not losing money on increased expenses. They're just price gouging. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting kind of interesting, but not necessarily unexpected development, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and in a, I think in addition to if we're on the topic of politicians, um, you kind of mentioned at the end of your article things that need to be done by uh, the Biden administration and the Fed to kind of limit the issues with inflation. Um, could you go into more detail about what that process might look like or what needs to be done? Right. Yeah. So on the more the Biden administration side and like Congress, um, mm-hmm. basically there's, there's two, um, uh, a few major things I brought up. Um, mm-hmm. One was basically going after all these anti-competitive and price gouging companies using antitrust uh, legislation and using the FTC. I talk about in the article how a lot of this inflation is happening in places where there's obviously like oligopolies and monopolies at play. Like in the meatpacking industry, there's only mm. four meatpacking giants, and one of them just had to settle for millions of dollars, um, an allegation of of uh, manipulating the market to increase their profits. So I think if the Biden administration, um, they, they've had a lot of talk about this, but if they had took some action and actually took some, some of these... Uh, profiteering and manipulative companies to court basically for antitrust issues it would solve it would basically serve as basically like an implicit threat to all the other price gouging companies Mm -hmm. that basically you can't you can't get away with this um anymore how likely do you think that happening is well it's um it's a a little complicated the biden administration has been pretty they've done a lot of talk about fighting Mm -hmm. things like monopoly and oligopoly and uh coercive companies they passed like a big thing about right to repair. They've passed an executive order about uh, empowering antitrust. Um, and they've talked a lot about how corporations in this current moment are price gouging. Um, I don't know if they have a lot of the uh, commitment to really take action like like lawsuits, though. Uh, it's it's yeah. a recurring trend in this administration to talk a lot. To talk a lot, yeah. Um, and I, it could also just be a symptom of oligopolies in general have be are being discussed a lot considering mm-hmm. uh Russia's negative press at the moment and yes. uh everyone talking about how oh we we bash Russia for having these oligarchs but in reality what we call business like entrepreneurs business giants mm-hmm. billionaires those are oligarchs and we're just calling them something different right especially when in the United States i mean there's a lot of industries that are so profitable and are so wealthy specifically because of government intervention, like any pharmaceutical company. I mean, the only reason like pharmaceutical companies are so profitable is because the government steps in and gives them monopolies on their products. Yes. I've read, uh, I I recently read, it's an older uh, article from um, uh, Alan Michael Parker's book, uh, Empire of Pain, which discusses the Sackler, which discusses the Sackler family mm-hmm. and Purdue Pharma and OxyContin and that whole process, and it is just insane how much money they make off of basically manipulating their patents and getting these monopoly monopolies on pharmaceuticals. It's just insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess now turning from 
Biden administration to like the Fed, what what can the Fed do if they can't they can't exactly regulate these companies? But what can they do to kind of decrease inflation? Right. So I mean, essentially, this goes back to what the Fed always does. Its main mission of controlling things like inflation and fostering a good economic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fed, um, as a lot of people know, I mean, it lowered its interest rate, its target interest rate to about zero during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a lot of um, they did a lot of measures to basically keep credit cheap and keep econ- keep the economy running. Um, so that means that they have a very they're in a very good position to do things like raising interest rates and taking money out of circulation, and this can bring down basically the aggregate level demand in the economy mm-hmm. and. You know, basic supply and demand. Yeah. If there's less demand, prices will ease somewhat. So, I mean, basically kind of what the Fed is doing right now, they're gradually raising interest rates. They're hopefully going to start undoing their, their balance sheet and start just taking money out of the supply mm-hmm. uh, at the margin. Things like this should do some easing of, of inflation. Um, basically, it won't stop adding fuel to the fire, essentially. Um, however, I do think that at least until the underlying problem, the supply chain mm-hmm. and the price gouging that's taken place because of the supply chain, till that's resolved, there's still going to be above average inflation. So it could be at the end of this year that we start to see, second half of this year, we start to see it subside. Could be later, depending on when the supply chain gets resolved. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's interesting. My initial thought of like, what, what do we do about... Because the reason they can price gouge is because everyone thinks inflation is happening, which inflation mm-hmm. is happening. Everyone's aware of it. So they're like, oh, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we can price gouge them. But, it's very psychological. Yeah, it's very psychological. But I'm wondering, could that be reduced if um, the Fed is like – if it basically gets widely advertised of like in, inflation's coming down. However, I know that contractionary monetary policy isn't necessarily the most popular thing mm-hmm. with – uh, most Americans. So I guess we'll have to see um, where we go with that. Uh, what, are, what are we looking at on time right now? We're about the 23-minute mark. So right. we uh, I think we're getting, going. yeah, I think we're uh, about to get kicked out of MGC 323. So you got to love it. Uh, thank, thank you all for listening. This has been uh, a super interesting conversation. Uh, go If you want to learn more, go and check out Kevin's article on the American Agora website and uh, do your own research. Learn learn more. Go uh, seek everything out. Uh, Thank you all for listening and goodbye.